Hello and welcome to the Speaking for Him podcast. My name is Andrew, and each and every Wednesday I have the privilege of being your host for a time of spiritual encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life, because we know that it is a marathon, not a sprint, and we need each other. Well, today on the show, I have the privilege of sitting down with New York Times bestselling author Karen Kingsbury to talk about her faith journey and her career in writing. Both of these things are centered on one person, the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm really excited to dig into that with you and to share this encouragement. If you appreciate this episode, please share it with your family and friends, and please give me feedback with the contact information that's about to roll at the end of the show. This would be very helpful to me as I continue to work to make this podcast even better for you, my listener. But also, it could be an encouragement to Karen as well. So please be assured that any feedback you have for her, I will pass on. We will get to my interview with her in just a few moments, but I have a couple things that I want to share with you first. And let's start out with our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from Karen herself. Through the course of the interview, I asked her if there were any scripture verses that were resonating with her at this particular time, and she brought up Hebrews 12, 1-3. And I really do think that this is a good jumping-off point for our conversation because everything about what Speaking for Him stands for is centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And everything that Karen stands for as a writer is centered upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm very excited that this passage brings that out. In Hebrews 12, 1-3, we read, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin would just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. And this passage is reflecting, of course, on Hebrews chapter 11, which just detailed a hall of faith of great men and women who stood for the Lord and the results. And often the earthly results were bad. There were great sacrifices and even sometimes lives given up for the sake of the Lord God. And yet in all these things, God was faithful to accomplish the things that he had for each individual person to accomplish. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 12, and we are told because of these witnesses, because of these examples that you have set before you in chapter 11, we are told that we should consider these witnesses and lay aside the things that hinder us 
from doing God's will. And then we should also look to the Lord Jesus because he is our perfect example of how to act and how to live this life. And I really like this passage because you have these first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12 telling us that we have examples to follow, telling us that the ultimate example is Jesus, and then we hear about the struggle that he went through on our behalf, and he did not give up until he accomplished the end goal, which was to give us heaven. Remember, on the cross of Calvary, he said, it is finished. And I'm so glad that we serve a God who says, it is finished, not keep working, not hope you're good enough, but it is finished. As I often reflect, most of the world's religions are do this and be saved. And Christianity says to us today, it is done. Simply accept Christ's sacrifice and you will be saved. So I hope that gives you some encouragement today and that you will be blessed as you listen to this wonderful story of redemption that is the story of Karen Kingsbury and her writing career. Before we move on to the interview, which I am extremely excited to share with you, please allow me to share with you the trailer for the first movie of Karen Kingsbury Productions. This is called Someone Like You, and it's based on one of Karen Kingsbury's novels. It's coming out this coming April, and Karen really wants as many people as possible to experience the life-changing message of this film. Karen puts her heart and soul in everything she does, and so I know you will be blessed by someone like you. It's a beautiful morning. I fell in love with London Quinn in high school, even though she told me not to. If you're driving, I'm picking music. Life can feel serene, and then a single rock breaks the surface. London? Sending ripples through all of time. It's been a hard year. So many I'm so sorry. Dawson, you deserve to know. London was an in vitro baby. We couldn't get pregnant otherwise. The procedure gave us two embryos. What about the other? We gave it to a doctor who works with infertile couples. Saying London might have a sibling? Hi. Uh, can we talk? Who are you? Why didn't you tell me? You were born for me. That's so hard to explain. I'm going to Birmingham. My real family lives there and I want to meet them. I'm home. Lord, please comfort this family. Do I look like London? I'm home. Yeah. I want to know everything about her. You love hiking here? This is incredible. Were you in love with her? You can't bring her back, man. I can stay here forever. She's not ours. She's not London. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm. I'd give a life in Nashville. We want you to come home. 
You were pushing me away. Every time that I'm with you, I was looking at London all over again. I can't change the past. I want you. I'm pulling for you. She always wanted me to find someone like you. For more information on this film, you can go to someonelikeyou.movie and when you go there, you can sign up for Karen Kingsbury's A-list, which will give you access to special information about the movie and the opportunity to purchase tickets early before they go on sale to the general public. This is an independent release. It is not picked up by a major studio. This is Karen Kingsbury's production's first movie. She's done some movies with other studios in the past, but she really wanted full creative control, and so that is why she has chosen to start Karen Kingsbury Productions, and she's starting it with a bang with Someone Like You, which is premiering in theaters everywhere on April 2nd. So I'm super excited about that, and I hope that you will take the time to learn more about the film project at someone like you dot movie. Well, the time has now come for me to share my interview with Karen Kingsbury. I was super thrilled that this finally worked. To me, this interview shows that patience and gentle persistence does indeed pay off. It took quite a while for our schedules to align, but I am super thankful to Karen for sitting down with me and sharing her amazing story of how she went from being a newspaper writer to being a writer of life-changing fiction. But most importantly, how Jesus Christ transformed her life and turned her into someone who just wants to share Jesus with as many people as possible. So without further ado, here is my interview with Karen Kingsbury, New York Times best-selling author. Well, I have been doing the Speaking for Him podcast for the last 11 years. Um, and I've done a lot of exciting interviews over the years, but none has me more excited than this one. After about a five-year wait, I am here with New York Times bestselling author Karen Kingsbury. Um, she is a writer of extremely inspirational fiction, and I am super excited to have her on the show so welcome to the show today, Karen. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you today. All right. Well, I just wanted to start at the beginning and for you to tell me a little bit about your growing up years and your childhood. Yeah, so we grew up, uh, my dad was with IBM, which we always took to mean I've been moved. And we actually lived in a number of different states, usually for no more than nine months or a year. And along the way, I found that my best friends lived in my head and were the ones that I could write about. And I started writing stories, short stories, that kind of thing. We ended up 
by the time I was 10, we lived in Los Angeles and I was just in love with writing. And every time I'd write a story, my dad would read it and he would get tears in his eyes and he would say, Karen, one day everyone's going to know your work. And so I was, I was very encouraged by my parents. I had four younger siblings and we all spent a lot of time together too. And that was great. Went to college, uh, studied journalism in college and was a reporter for the LA Times for several years before I began writing books. So you pretty much knew from early childhood that being a writer was something that you wanted to be. So my next question would be, how did you come to know Jesus personally? Because I know that your relationship with Jesus is a huge part of your writing, and it's definitely been a blessing to my Christian journey. So could you please share a little bit of your Christian journey? Absolutely. Wow. That's such a, a good question and such a, an integral part of who I actually am as a person. So mid twenties, uh, met this handsome guy named Donald, Donald Russell, and he was on a journey. Um, we, we kind of had some friends in common and we kind of chatted for a few hours that first night that we met. We met at a health club working out and, um, he was telling me that he was just on a journey and he asked me about faith. And I said, you know, I had been raised in a denominational faith, but I didn't see myself as religious or, I mean, I knew I believed in God, but it was very distant for me. And um, so then he said, well, you know what? I'd love to take you on a date. Could I please bring my Bible and we could maybe read the Bible before we go to the movie? And I thought that was the weirdest thing, Andrew, that I had literally ever heard. Like, you're going to bring the Bible? But I thought he was cute and it's LA and I was not a drinker, partier. I, I never was like that girl. And so I thought he seems pretty clean cut and like there could be worse things that you would bring on a date. So I said, um, sure. Do you want to bring the Bible? Sure. Go ahead. And so, um, so we did. So we brought the Bible to the date. We read Philippians and of course we're reading Philippians four and I'm just looking at my watch. Like I'm so uncomfortable and there's this conviction of the Holy Spirit that I'm completely undiscerned to. I have no idea what I'm feeling. And I don't know a Philippian from any other Ippian. Like I have no idea what a Philippian is. You know what, if it's, I have have no idea, totally in the dark. So probably halfway through chapter four, he took a pause and I said, okay, can we, are we good? Can we check the box? And now we can head off on our date. And he was kind of like, oh, sure. Yeah, I guess. Well, that was like three months then. The next three months, it was always, he had the Bible. He was in love with the Bible. He was trying to find what did God want and and whatever God wanted, that's what he wanted to do. Um, just a seeking after what the Lord had and wanting to find a church that matched what scripture taught. That's where he was at in LA, this good looking guy. And he'd done some acting and he was just like, the other life is shallow. Like what? there's nothing to it. Um, yeah. So then he, he basically three months in showed me a Bible verse. We were standing outside by his car on a sunny LA day and it just hit me in a way that it was just too much. And I took his beautiful highlighted underlined Bible and I threw it on the ground. Andrew broke it in half. It was crazy. It was like the, the worst moment. And I, and he picked up the pieces, gave me a sad look. He drove, he drove off, took the, took it with him. And then I thought, okay. The ground is going to open and I'm going to be the first person on the down staircase because you can't defend your, I had, by that point, I was like that person who says, well, I believe fill in the blank, you know, like all these, I believes, who am I? Like, why, why would I think that was a good way to base my life? Like on the, I believes. 
but people do that. And today they say, oh, it's, you know, your truth, my truth, whatever. But, and I was kind of like that. And so um, I knew where I had to go. I had to go to this weird little store that I had passed all my life growing up in LA and it was a Christian bookstore. So I went there, found someone who helped me get a Bible in English. That's what I asked for. So they got me an NIV Bible and I wanted to look up words to see if what I believed was in the Bible so I could debate it with him. And so they gave me a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. And I carried these heavy books out to the car, never even turned on the engine. I began looking up words. And the things I thought would be there were not there. Of course they weren't. And so I could hear the Lord like the first time I felt like God really spoke to me. And he said, Karen, you can fall away with all your man-made beliefs or you can grab onto my word and never let go. And in that moment, in that car, on that sunny Southern California day, I grabbed onto God's word and I've never looked back. That's awesome. There are so many stories of people who pick up the word of God with the express purpose of disproving it. And then they meet the word made flesh, Jesus, and he changes their life completely. Uh, and that's the difference between the Bible and so many other books. You know, I love books. In my opinion, there's no such thing as too many books, just too few bookshelves. But <laughs> but there's no book like the Bible. And so what a wonderful testimony that is that you set out to refute this guy and Jesus changed your life and then you married him. How great is that? Yeah, he forgave me. I got him a Bible, a new Bible. And now we've been married 35 years and Jesus is everything to us. The living word of God that is alive and active, able to change you and draw you close and heal you is still at the center of all we do. That's awesome. So your first couple books that you wrote were true crime books. Um, I haven't read those, but how did those come about? Well, uh, we've been married six months. We were living in a garage, high end, um, just a one. It was actually like they built this building in the back behind the house at this. Somebody at our church knew of this family, um, and it was really just a widow. And she had a big mansion. But behind the house was this little one-car garage with no windows, just one sliding door, all paneled, and it was their bunker. So this was like Cold War days. So the thought was if we got attacked by a nuclear war, a nuclear weapon, you would go into this single car garage and be fine. You know, I, I probably think it wouldn't have worked that way, but uh, they had this space. And so if you took the couch bed and you opened it up, that's how big it was. You only had about a foot to walk around. So we lived there, no heat, no air. And, um, and at six months in, we found out we were expecting a baby and that was not our plan. And my husband just kept that beautiful faith. He's just like that childlike faith. And he's this strong athlete, basketball coach, teacher, incredible dad and husband, but he has childlike faith. And so he said, well, that's awesome. Like we're going to have a baby. And I'm like, I work 12 hour days. By then I'm writing for the front page of a newspaper and I'm not doing sports. I'm doing crime stories and I'm very busy. And my plan A, which was to write novels was kind of, fallen by the wayside. And I was doing, you know, I was doing front page journalism in LA and, um, and it was keeping me very busy. So I thought, my goodness, I'm never going to know this child. Like the child will grow up in daycare. And, and my husband was finishing a master's degree to be a teacher. And it was just not how I pictured it. And we're living in a garage. 
And um, anyway, so it was, he prayed and prayed that there would be a way for me to be at home writing. And I was kind of same thing, like with the Bible, I was just trying to like, honey, that's not going to happen. Like you can't, even though I don't make much money, I'm not going to make that freelancing, you know? And so I ended up selling a story to People Magazine and it ran the exact week that my, our little girl was born, Kelsey, and an agent saw it and he contacted me and said, well, that would make a really good book. Like, are you interested? I had no idea. I'd never even read a true crime book, you know, at that point. So I read a couple books and I wrote an outline. I mean, this is back like dot matrix days, like you're printing it, you know, on this line printer and you're tearing off the perforated edges and mailing it to them. And he got the outline and the synopsis and he loved it. And a few weeks later, I was getting ready to have to go back to work. I'd already put the non-refundable deposit on the daycare and he called and said, I need you to sit down. And he had, he had gotten it into a bidding war between a couple of major secular publishers. And, uh, he told me the advance and the advance was three times my annual salary. So he said, he, you know, he broke it down. He said, the first check will be, you know, this amount. And that's probably all you'll get for a year because you'll have to cover the trial and write the book, whatever. And, um, I said, well, tell me what that is after your commission and whatnot. And he said, the number and it was $11.89 more than I made a year. And the annual salary was what my husband was praying for. So it was a miracle. And I went in the next day to, to work and I did love that job. I love those people. I kept a Bible on my desk and I got to lead a couple of those people to Jesus, which was incredible. I got to see the inner workings of a, of a news office where there's a lot of subjectivity, even back then, you know, and people trusted implicitly and it's, it's definitely opinion related, you know, and, uh, and I just, I quit the next day and I said, I'm not going to be coming back. And I went home and I've been writing books ever since. So true crime, the first four books were true crime books based on my stories that I'd done reporting on. And then after that, I couldn't, I couldn't do another one, no matter what I was like, if I have to go back to waiting tables, like I did when I was in college, then I'll do that because I cannot write another true crime book. Even though God put, God put redemptive characters and those are true stories, but there was always somebody with some faith or redemption, but it was not what I wanted to write. And so on spec with no contract, I wrote, uh, where yesterday lives. And that was my first like life changing novel. And it took a year before I got a contract on that. Um, but I eventually did. And I've been writing those books ever since. So Where Yesterday Lives was your first novel then? Yes. Okay. The first novel of yours that I read was A Thousand Tomorrows. And as soon as I read it, I went and looked up all the rest of the books that you had read today and started reading through them. And I've enjoyed every single one of them. And so that's one of the reasons why it's always been such a dream to get the opportunity to sit down with you and actually talk about what it has been like to write these amazing books because you've changed a lot of people's lives. Um, I, I hardly ever do, but I definitely understand when people say that you should keep tissues near you when you're <laughs> reading a Karen Kingsbury book. The weirdest part is when you're reading in public, I do a lot of reading cause I don't drive. So I wait for my transportation at various places. And sometimes when you're sitting reading a book, and bawling in public, you kind of wonder, what are people thinking right now about <laughs> me as I'm reading this book? And they're not real people, but at the same time, you almost find yourself praying for them, even though they're fictional, because 
you write them with such depth and real personality. So it's something that I definitely appreciate. And I know myriads of your fans do as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That means so much. So your biggest uh, character group is the Baxter family. And that started as a five book series with Gary Smalley. uh, If I'm remembering correctly. So how did that come about? Yeah. So with my first six novels, um, I mean, they just weren't picking up traction. It was funny because, you know, it, it's a kind of a process. So I'd go into a bookstore and not tell them out that I was Karen Kingsbury. And then I would say, do you have that new book by Karen Kingsbury waiting for morning or whatever than one of the first six? And they would say, yes, we do, but we are out of stock. We just can't keep to, can't seem to keep those on shelves. And of course, you know, you could, you just have to order more, but I it was kind of stuck like in a rut where they would, published 15,000 copies and they would run out and then I would have another book, 15,000 copies. Well, Gary Smalley, uh, who has passed on to heaven several years back now, but was a, he was a speaker and a writer about relationships and godly relationships. And he was one of my like 15,000 readers who knew. So he contacted me through like his people to my agent, whatnot, and said, I want to meet with her. So my husband and myself and our kids, we went to Branson, Missouri, where Gary lived. We met with him and his wife, Norma, went out on their boat with them. And he said, okay, here's my proposition. He said, I want you, I think you are the best novelist I've ever read. And I want you to write a series about a family and incorporate some of the teachings that I've been teaching about relational, you know, love in, in God's kingdom, like love is a decision and these kinds of things. And so literally... He, and then he prayed that my books would do so well and that I would do so well as a novelist that one day people might not know him, but they would know me. It was, and it was like unheard of thought. It was like, what? You know, he was very gracious and very humble, kind man. Well, on the flight home, God gave me the Baxter family. Like I'm just on a single flight and I'm writing as fast as I can in a notebook, like the Baxters. Okay. John and Elizabeth, he's a doctor. Like they live. I could just see it, all of it, their kids, the storylines that might come. I could see five books. And, um, you know, when I, when I got back home, of course I called Gary and I let him know. And Gary was in the middle of a contract deal where he was doing a big, big contract with a Christian publisher and he wanted to include these novels. Now he said, I'm not going to write anything, but, I just want you to know, like, I want to do what I can to help them be seen by the people. And so he got Tyndale to agree to include this, this series of books. I think they thought he was crazy to want to include novels in his big umbrella contract, but it ended up being that the novels are really, it ended up being the sweet spot for his, for that part of his career. Um, so yeah, so he didn't do any of the writing, but he was the one who encouraged me. Kind of, there was like a, Forgiveness is a choice. Those kinds of things, like just basically beautiful teachings that were simple and became kind of the theme for that that particular story. And after five books, Gary called me and he said, "This isn't me." He goes, "My name can't be on this book." He goes, "You you have wings now." He goes, "You go fly and take these characters wherever God has for you, you know, to take them." And so then there became, I mean, you know, I can still see them. I mean, I can still see what the Baxters are doing today, twenty five books later. I got to say, as you continued to write them, I was extremely happy, but also kind of shocked in a good way about all the different directions you could write the Baxter family. And 
you know, sometimes you write a series and you, you move on from them, but it mm-hmm. really seems like the Baxters give you a platform to share your heart. I know there's elements of the Baxters and their friends from your own family. Um, like mm-hmm. the Flanagan family is very much the Kings or the Russell family. So, yeah. um, I know that a lot of times when you're writing for them, you're basically just writing for yourself, but we all get to enjoy the results, which is really amazing. Mm. Um, so that leads me to my question about your newest book. I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy. And so I'm excited to hear you talk a little bit about how it came together. Um, this one is called just once and it's about a side character from one of the Baxter family novels, um, Ervil, who was in the nursing home where Ashley Baxter worked. And so can you tell me about how you decided to write this novel? Yeah, this is such a fun process. And it's just so fun when you can, writing books is a great thing, especially novels, because I can truly write whatever God gives me. And, um, you know, you could do all of it, the weather and the, the sets, the time period and whatever God puts on my heart, I can write. <clears throat> that was the case with this one with just once. Uh, Irvil Holland was a patient at Sunset Hills adult care home. She was in her eighties and she was a minor character, but she made a very big impact on Ashley Baxter, changed her life. Irvil was this genteel, sweet woman who came very neatly dressed to breakfast each morning at this Alzheimer's home. And she would ask for a cup of peppermint tea. And then she would go sit in the front room and she would just stare out the window waiting for her husband, Hank, to come home from a day of fishing with the boys. But really, Hank had been gone to heaven seven years earlier. And Ervil just didn't know that. Now, some of the people who worked at this home would say, Ervil, your husband, Hank, is gone. He's He's been dead for seven years. And really, I mean, really upset her and hurt hurt her heart. And Ashley decided, you know, what if we just let her think that? Like, how is that harmful you know, and she kind of developed a, this theory, this past present theory, let her, let her live wherever she's happy to live. Like that's why God gives us memories, you know, and uh, it changed Ashley. It helped draw her back to God. So when it came time for Herbal to go now, Herbal to me, I never had a grandmother. Both my grandmothers were dead when I was, you know, before I was born and Herbal um, became sort of the grandmother that I never had. I really loved her. And as I knew her time was coming to pass, it was just like I found myself writing more and more slowly because I didn't want to say goodbye to Herbal. But finally, you know, I, I was like, okay, I, I know this is going to be sad. So I went into our bedroom and I sat in my chair and I'm just writing slower and slower. Finally, she took her last breath, put a period at the end of a sentence, and I had to set my laptop down beside my chair and just have a good cry over losing Herbal because it was just like this heartbreaking goodbye for me. And right then at that moment, my husband, smiling, happy. He comes bounding into our bedroom and he has uh, looking for a sweatshirt and he sees me crying and he says, Oh no, Karen, what's wrong? What happened? And I said, (laughs) and so then he kind of gets this dramatic, like, Oh no. He says, do we know Ervil from church or from school? (laughs) And uh, so I said, Honey, no, she's one of my characters. So then he kind of gives me this look, kind of rolls his eyes a little bit. He's like, um, I don't feel sorry for you, Karen. I mean, you killed her. (laughs) 
And so it was one of those moments of him going, Oh my goodness, you're so, you're so crazy, Karen. You have these things in your head so real that they're real to you. And uh, then he said, Why don't you just bring her back? I mean, backspace delete. Like you don't have to let her die. And I said, Honey, she is in her late eighties and she is. It's her time to go. It's just sad for me. So then I got to thinking, you know, I could bring her back. Like I could bring her back and I could go back to the 1940s to 1940. And to when she was just a young 20 year old and I could see her being friends with Hank and, and dating Hank's brother and just this whole little circle of friends listening to the radio, these reports coming through that the war is heating up, thinking somehow that we were going to avoid being in the war. And I could see her getting panic attacks and not being able to really handle the news. And maybe someone today listening is feeling that same way. I mean, we're not far off from that today of hearing bad news and being scared by it. So Irvel began to arm herself with scripture. She knew that she wasn't going to be able to do much more than, but she had to be strong enough to be able to take the news. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor. And by then, you know, Irvel was just able to draw in Bible verses to be able to withstand what was happening around her. So much so that, and this came as a shock to me when I found this out about Irvel. And when it was like, in my head, it came, I was like, what? Yes, Irvel, very intelligent woman a mathematician. She signed up to teach while her peers and all the guys went off to go serve after Pearl Harbor. And that's where the Office of Strategic Services found her because she was so brilliant at math. And they brought her in. The OSS was the first CIA agency and they made Herbal Holland a spy and she couldn't tell anyone. So she ends up serving on a warship. She told everyone she was a nurse, but she was part of this group code breaking in the Pacific theater and then going on to war torn islands and taking bags that looked like medical supplies, but really that held deep secrets for the uh, generals and people in charge that were behind enemy lines. So it was truly the most incredible story that God put on my heart. And then I researched it like crazy. So it would be authentic. And uh, you know, it's, it's just now I'm hearing from people Some of the best reviews I've ever had, Andrew, are coming in about just one. So I am thrilled and I cannot wait for everyone else to get to enjoy Herbal Holland's story. So the part about the OSS and the work that Herbal did, that is based on historical fact? It is. There were several thousand women that joined the, and men as well, but several thousand women in particular that was just so intriguing to me that was it possible that this could be, you know, Irville's story. And oh, I just, I loved it that she went, you know, the, of course her, the peer, her peers, I mean, the men who were fighting the war at that point were armed and as they should have been, but she was armed with scripture. And that's how she was brave enough to be able to sail on battleships and take part in such clandestine, you know, kind of incredible um spy and covert activities. It's all accurate in terms of what happens in the book. I had a great time, um, you know, it's her granddaughter is writing a book about her life called Just Once. And so we get to see the granddaughter at a ceremony where she receives an honor for her grandmother. And it's this is when they finally even in, like recognize that, yes, we did have these spies. And that was just a handful of years ago uh, in real life. And so I just had a fictitious, you know, obviously, you know, her granddaughter being there to receive her award. And then we, the story really picks up and starts with, with Irvel getting her diagnosis of Alzheimer's and the doctor saying, it looks like it's going to go quickly. And, um, the last color you'll remember is red. 
<clears throat> and he says to her, you know, red is something about the memory. The memory sees red and remembers. And so Hank lovingly he takes photos of their life and frames them in red and puts them on the walls. And he gets a camera and he says, we need to tell our story just once, one more time so that the world knows our love story because it's so breathtaking. And they, they tell the story and we get to go back in time as she does and relive it. Well, as someone who appreciates history, um, particularly the Civil War and World War II, I really appreciated having something that was historical fiction, but also tied into my favorite characters. And so it was a real blessing of a book. Once again, it is a tissue alert. And I love how you blend certain elements that are kind of predictable with with certain elements that are definitely not predictable. So it's it's really a testament to the way that God works through your writing that it comes across that way. And I just, I really enjoyed the book, so I wholeheartedly recommend it to others when they get a chance to read it and enjoy it. And hopefully it can encourage someone who went through Hank's struggle. I know with my family, my grandma I had dementia for the last, I think, 12 years that she was with us. Uh, and it was not traditional Alzheimer's, um, but she basically got to the point where she couldn't have any conversations. And it was really sad to uh, go through that, but it was also remarkable how much I grieved after she passed away because even though in some ways she wasn't there, it was still really hard when she went to heaven. Um, because it was good to have her with us. And there are certain things that you always remember as well. She had her ability to sing much longer than the rest of her vocal abilities. So we would go to her nursing home and uh, sing with her. And that was always something that she enjoyed and we enjoyed as well. I've always grown up uh, loving the old hymns and she definitely did. And so it was a great way to communicate with her. So I really uh, appreciated the book and I know that uh, whatever you have coming up will be good as well because I haven't read a bad Karen Kingsbury book. So. Mm, Thank you so much. So sweet. What a sweet story about your grandmother. So I know that one of your latest projects is you recently started Karen Kingsbury productions. Uh, I know that you have had um, at least one movie uh, released by another company, because I remember like Dandelion Dust. So what led to the formation of Karen Kingsbury Productions? You know, it's one of those things where the journey of the years, so like Dandelion Dust was more than a decade ago, and then there were several Hallmark movies as well. And, um, you know, it was, it was, ne- it was just kind of like, it was always an honor, but it was never really the story that God put on my heart. And then uh, Tyler, my oldest son, our oldest son uh, is a writer and he studied directing in school and had done, directed a few films, a few short films. And so uh, he and I began screenwriting together. And one of the Hallmark movies, we wrote that together. So he was getting, you know, he's, he's talented and we were able, and we wrote some books together as well, the Baxter family children. And so um, last year in May, it was just one of those moments. My husband and I looked at each other and we said, okay, 
it's never going to be exactly what we picture unless we make it ourselves. And we had, we had saved up some money. Um, and rather than just make it an investment in something that, you know, a building or something like we said, what if we use it all? What if we spend it all and we make a movie and we, it was 2 million, $2 million is just not a lot of money for a movie. And, uh, and we knew that, but we, we kind of penciled it out. And then it was kind of like, you know, Andrew, that moment where, um, then like a major league baseball player is pitching picture the moment he releases the ball. It's coming 97 miles an hour toward the batter. The batter now has a half a second to decide whether to swing. And last year, that's how it felt to us. And my husband put his hands on my shoulders and he said, Karen, I feel like God is saying, if we have to sell everything, this is the time to make a movie. And so we swung and we trusted him and we prayed hourly, like some days and definitely every day we prayed for his wisdom and for his favor, because that's, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, earth is short, you know, this is just this, we're just passing through here. And what can we do that will glorify God in this time? And I did not want to be at the other end of this journey and say, you know, what if I would have, what if we would have swung the bat? What, what if we would have done this for the glory of God? So we jumped and we swung and, um, Tyler and I wrote the script. We picked the book, someone like you, because it's cinematic and it's a, a young love story. There's um, jet skiing. It's it's very cinematic and deep themes of loss, forgiveness, uh, redemption and hope. So we just we didn't know what we were doing. Like we had I mean, I mean, we were brand new at all of this, but Tyler prayed about it. He accepted the job of being the director. Um, we ended up doing pre-production here at our house with 50 casting crew. It was wild. We did a little devotion every morning and we said, first, we want to, we want to love you. Like first we want to love you with the love of God. And then we'll make a good movie together. And not, they weren't all believers, but they could all understand that we were loving them, feeding them well, you know, having fun with them, asking how they're doing. We rolled cameras in October. We filmed for 25 days. Tyler prayed before the start of each day on set. Um, when we finished, we stepped back and it was like that, that was a miracle. Like only God could have given us what we captured. So now it's been edited. We have our locked cut and we're in the final process of, you know, coloring and, and sound effects and things like that. And we have Michael W. Smith's son, Tyler Smith is a very talented composer. He is doing the score for the movie. And I'm telling you, just the music would make you cry. It's just beautiful. So, um, so yeah, so we'll, we're looking to open in theaters everywhere across the United States and Canada on April 2nd. That's awesome. Well, I definitely can say that I have read your books and thought, well, a lot of these would make good films. So I'm glad that you're able to draw on your own material and, and make good films. I, I love to review Christian films and films that are positive for people who are seeking to walk closer with Jesus. So I will definitely be uh, checking out someone, someone like you. I really appreciated the book. Um, again, like all of your books, it seems there's times when you are sad and times when you're happy and times when you don't know whether you're sad or happy. Um, <laughs> but, but at the end, a wonderful story has definitely unfolded. So I'm looking forward to seeing that come to final fruition in April. And then hopefully, you know, that will lead you to opportunities to adapt more of your material into 
great movies just as they have become great books. So that leads me to a question about the Baxter family. I know that you've filmed um, some episodes of a Baxter family TV show. Um, do you have any news on that front that you can share with us? Well, um, okay. So yeah, three seasons are in the can and it was MGM that paid for it. And, uh, Roma Downey was the one that, that optioned the material. She plays Elizabeth. You know, she was our touched by an angel actress from back in the day. And, uh, so we did three seasons and I think she had the hope of starting her own streaming service, but it was just too competitive of a field for that, which, you know, that was kind of, um, that became apparent pretty early on. And so then now Amazon, uh, came along and bought MGM. So in the middle of that transaction, that took like two, three years of legal wrangling and whatnot. And they just sat and they're still sitting waiting for their live day when they get to come to life. Um, we're excited. I, I'm not allowed to say that, um, they'll probably be out this spring, but I'm not allowed to say that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I remember when you were making it, you, you made an allusion to the fact that you felt like it would be kind of like a modern day Waltons. And I happen to be a huge Waltons fan. I'm actually watching through the series for the second time and I just love that show. And so if, uh, the Baxters can bring a modern spin to that, I think that would be awesome. Um, we definitely again need family friendly TV shows that you can sit down with your family and not worry about content and know that you're going to come away with a great lesson and especially a lesson about family togetherness. So fingers crossed that everything goes well and that all the little details um, will be figured out. And most of all that Jesus will be glorified through the process. Amen. So can you tell us anything about your next novel? Well, you know, right now I'm working on the synopsis, actually working, I've got the synopsis, but kind of the outline for one called Where the Sea Meets the Sky. And it's going to have a little element of mystery to it, a little bit of intrigue. Um, it'll be a, a, involving a, a woman who has a car accident and she's been in an Uber. So she, she doesn't have her purse. Like she, so we don't know who she is. And, um, and just her process of walking through forgetting everything to gradually remembering that she's supposed to be getting married. And why was she actually leaving? Well, maybe she was running for her life. And so um, a guy steps in to help her. He's a detective from the town where she has the accident. And we come to find out that he was the love of her life back in the day. So, and it's a, you know, really a story of rescue. I think that a lot of people, you know, when I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I don't know if I can believe in a guy who, who just sends people to hell, you know? And I'll say, oh, no, no, it's, it's not, that's not the right perspective. It's true. The truth is we're all, we're all sinners. We're all, we're all going to hell except for Jesus. And Jesus is the one that rescues. So you can choose the rescue or you don't have to, that's up to you, but he doesn't send people. He rescues people from hell. Absolutely. That's a big thrust of my ministry too. I, in addition to the podcast, I travel and, uh, around and preach wherever possible. And that's one of the revelations that I came to, especially over the last five years is we used to have this narrative, uh, that God sends sinners to hell because he can't 
have sin in his presence, which is in part true. But then mm-hmm. you realize that Jesus opened his arms wide on the cross and said, if you will come to me, I won't cast you out. I have a place for you if you want to come to me. And he even extended that to the uh, thief on the cross. And I like to think that that same offer was extended to the centurion because one of the last things that the centurion who crucified him said was surely this was the son of God. And so my hope is that I will one day meet that centurion in heaven because the disciples shared with him the end of the story. And we know that after Jesus' resurrection, there was one meeting where he met with up to 500 people at once. So maybe he was one of that group. But the point being that Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then God the Father answered that prayer request right away in the person of the thief on the cross. And then, like I said, again, uh, I believe with the centurion. So what a wonderful God we serve that even at the cross, he cared more about us than he did about himself. Hmm. That, that brings tears to my eyes. That's exactly right, Andrew. So how can we pray for you right now specifically? Well, I hope that you can share the trailer for someone like you. It just released last week and it's been met with great um, you know, enthusiasm. So it was released on an exclusive on people magazine, people.com, the trailer. And it's got on um, like TikTok, which I just joined TikTok like four days ago. I never really wanted to be in TikTok, but it's got over a million views there. So it's really hitting a nerve with young people. But if they can check out um the un well, mainly it would just be someone like you dot movie. And it's someone like you dot movie they can find the trailer and sign up for the A list. The A-list gives people a chance. The people who sign up on the A-list, they'll tell us their name and their email address and how many tickets they might want. And then on February 1st, two weeks before the tickets go on sale to the public, we will contact the A-list and they'll get the special chance to have access to tickets early. So signing up for the A-list, I think for prayer, it's praying over all of it, that I'll have wisdom and continue to have God's favor. All of the studios turned us down. Um, We didn't end up with any marketing partners that were the traditional marketing partners. So I've linked arms with organizations that I've been friends with for decades, like, you know, Hobby Lobby and Lifeway and American Association of Christian Counselors and Compassion International, Pray.com, Uversion. And these are the ones that are helping me to get the word out about the movie and they're believing in it. And I'm so blessed. I feel so, so thankful. So just, you know, protection, um, over this process of our family, that we would be strong in our love for people and in our love for the truth as this movie comes to light. Well, I can tell you that I believe the last two or three times I've been at the theaters, I've seen a trailer for this movie. So the word is getting out despite the fact that you didn't get a major studio to back you. It kind of reminds me of another little movie called The Passion of the Christ. (laughs) that no one wanted to back, but then it exploded. And so if God's in it, it's going to reach the people that he wants it to reach. And even if her chance had only reached five people, those would still be the five people that he would want to reach. So that is the important thing to remember. 
Um, I will definitely share the trailer. I'll probably find it and share it in the intro to this interview. Uh, oh, great. And that way more people will know about it. And I'm excited to help in any way I can to promote this film and get people to go see it. So um, my next question is, and I probably know this because you write it in a lot of your books, but maybe there's also another verse that God has been using in your life lately. Um, so this question would be, do you have a favorite Bible verse uh, that God is using in your life right now? I'm going to say Hebrews 12, like one through three. Um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let us consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we do not grow weary and lose hope. Those are good words, especially like you have alluded to a couple times in the culture in which we live where Truth is relative and where we now have these tensions in the Middle East, things that Jesus told us about. Um, so this isn't a surprise to God. And I, if we are well versed in our Bible, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But what a wonderful thing that we can have a focus to continue to do good and to shine as lights in this dark world. One thing that I am reminded of constantly is that as things get darker, you need more light. So as the world gets darker, we need to shine even brighter than we have been. So what a wonderful thing it is to know that you are uh, doing that through your life-changing fiction and, and now Lord willing through your life-changing movies. That's exciting. So I just have one more question for you and then we'll wrap up. I'm so thankful for you taking the time. Um, but what is God teaching you this year in particular in 2023? Um, God's teaching, God is teaching me in 2023 to trust him, um, that it's all about him. It's for him. It's for his glory. I'm a competitive person. Like I'm a person who goes for my dreams and, um, I don't rest much, you know, I think all the time and I'm, and I'm just by nature, I'm a person who tries to make things happen and whatever, but the older you get, you know, like at this stage of my life, especially with this, like, I have no control over something like a movie, none. And so he's really teaching me to understand that I never did have control, that it's always been him. Um, just a closer and deeper walk with him, with my eyes on him, nothing could touch the joy I have in the presence of the Lord, the way it feels to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk with him day to day. Nothing could touch that. The movie could make a hundred million dollars and I'll say, praise God, show me how to use it. Or the movie could do nothing, you know, and, and either way, nothing can touch my joy. And I, I just think that's a, uh, a wonderful place of maturity that is a, a great, a great goal for all of us, you know, and it's not like it's that minute by minute, but I have to be reminded of that at times, but it's walking so closely with him that nothing touches that pleasure. That is so good. I know that as I have gone through the process of formally being in ministry, I, it's kind of been a struggle at times because when I came out of college, I was like, well, I want to find the full-time job 
and be able to buy a house and be prepared to raise a family, all stuff that's good. Uh, but then God didn't lead me down that path. And he really has kept me involved in the ministry space. And even though I haven't always made a lot of money at it, um, and I've given up some opportunities uh, that haven't been working as well, um, when it comes to fulfilling my vision before God, I know that even if uh, certain things aren't the way that I would want them, that there's nothing better than being at the center of his will and having that peace of knowing that, like you said, regardless of how it does, regardless of how many people, for instance, listen to this podcast, that the people that do listen are the ones that God wanted to bless. And that the important thing for me and the important thing for you, the important thing for our listeners is faithfulness to what God says, regardless of how it appears. Hmm. I love that. That's, that's so much wisdom. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us. I am super excited to share this conversation with my listeners and I'm super excited for all of the wonderful things that you have upcoming, I will be praying for you as you continue to write. And uh, I hope to dip my toe into the world of novel writing eventually as well. I love words and I love coming up with stories. And uh, I just I am very appreciative of you as a writer being an inspiration for me and others like me. So thank you very much. Well, it's such an honor. Thank you for sharing. Well, with that, I will simply say to all of you out there, if you enjoyed this interview, please share it with your family and friends. And until next time, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.